0: Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist and a best-selling author, and he's also my
1: dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Forrest, and as usual, happy to be doing this with you. Yeah, I'm happy to be doing this with
0: you, too, and also so happy to be joined by today's guest. Today, we're going to be focusing on navigating and maybe even in some ways embracing times of change, uncertainty, and difficulty. To help us do that, we're joined by a wonderful teacher, Kyra Jewel Lidgo. Kyra Jewell is a Buddhist teacher who weaves mindfulness and meditation practice with social justice. At the age of 25, she became a Buddhist nun at the Plum Village community in France under the guidance of Zen master Thich Han, where she stayed for 15 years. She became a Zen teacher in 2007 and is also a teacher in the Vipassana Insight Tradition through Spirit Rock Meditation Center. She's also the author of the wonderful book, We Were Made for These Times, 10 Lessons for Moving Through Change, Loss, and Disruption, which I thoroughly enjoyed reading. And she was the editor of Thich Han's Planting Seeds, Practicing mindfulness with children. So, Kyra Jewel, thank you for joining us today. How are you doing?
2: Thank you for having me. I'm really well. It's a, really a joy to to be with both of you.
0: Yeah, we're so happy to be doing this with you. Authentically, I truly loved reading your book. I thought it was so essential for the experiences that so many people are having right now. And I would like to start with your truly fascinating background. Uh, you grew up in an interracial family, I believe, in Chicago, and. Please correct me if I get any of the details here wrong. And you were raised in a Christian community. Then at a young age, you spent, I think it was four years with your family on the outskirts of Nairobi as they supported the local community there. In your teens, you were an exchange student in Brazil. You went to Stanford and then Howard University. And then everything seemingly culminates with becoming a nun in the Plum Village community at 25 Then 15 years later, another major change occurs as you decided to leave monastic life. And just in that paragraph, there are so many experiences and so much change to navigate. And maybe focusing on some of the more recent ones, what supported you personally during those times of major change? Or maybe given you kind of the courage to disrupt your life or what maybe many people would think of as disrupting your life in such a major way?
2: yeah, you, you captured all those details really well. Uh, thank you. I'll just start with the word "trust" as a I learned to trust that something was holding me throughout these uh, difficult and confusing times. and And I was trusting that there was something in me that knew that even though, you know, what seemed to be out there was so scary and so unknown and um, so unsure and unreliable and not guaranteed, what helped me to make, you know, this big transition out of monastic life, for instance, was this sense of trusting my own inner voice and a sense of, of where I needed to be. And it wasn't all at once that I... Was able to feel this. It was, you know, just like in Buddhism, faith is verified faith, right? Faith is what we experience and then we know we can believe in it because we know it from our own experience. And so my trust, I think, was a kind of verified trust that I took a little step and there was something that was holding me up. I took another little step and there was something there even though it felt like I was stepping out into the abyss, you know?
3: Mm. But there
2: was actually, when I trusted enough to put my foot out there, I learned something would come and hold me. So then I had trust to take Mm. another step, and then there was something that would come and hold me. So,
1: What did you find that was holding you, inside you, outside you, or both?
2: Mm. This goes back to when I hadn't yet ordained. I was traveling in India for three months uh, right after I finished graduate school. And just before I went to Plum Village for the first time, I I got sick on a journey. I got Jardia on a trip. I was by myself traveling overnight from Haridwar up to Dharamsala. And I was so sick, I had to get off the bus in Chandigarh right at the beginning of the Himalayas and the foothills, so it was dark. It was cold. I, I didn't know what I was going to do or where I was going to go. And I was part of this international peace organization. So I, I had a booklet of who would host you. And it was called Servas. So I called someone in Chandigarh asking if they would host me. And they said yes. And there were two young men in this bus station who came to me as I was waiting to get into a, a rickshaw to take me out. this place and they they said it's really too dangerous for you to go by yourself there we'll come with you and make sure you get there safely they hadn't even been on my bus they just saw me and and so I was I was so I'd never been in this situation before I was really ill and scared and I was crying into the phone you know asking you know if I could come and stay with this person Thank goodness they were with me in this rickshaw because we were with it. The driver ended up being drunk and new to the city and got lost. He got lost and he wanted to let us all out in the middle of nowhere because he didn't know how to get to where we were going. <laughs> Thank goodness, because I couldn't talk to him. These two young men were able to say, hey, you have to take us to the place. You can't leave us here. You know, in a moment like that, I realized something is protecting me (laughs) that these these two young men found me. And I realized if I had always been with friends or with people that I knew, I never would have had that experience of being vulnerable and needing help and then being able to receive the help of strangers. Mm -hmm. So I think from a young age, also because of the work my parents did of service and I think growing up and seeing people who lived in service and who who were supported by the world around them, because we did live off of donations, we we lived off of the generosity of of people who believed in the work you know the adults in my community were doing, that was sort of permeated me early on that, oh, like that works, actually, like maybe not perfectly, but to some extent, there really is this exchange in life of giving and receiving. And then to have my own experiences of, of kindness. And I think it's such a blessing that I found Plum Village and that I found a teacher that I really could take refuge in and that completely changed my life. That was an, a building of this sense of, this is why I trust, because all these things have come into my life that I could never have planned or created for myself. Mm. So what was that that was that was allowing all these good things to flow into me is something much bigger than than me. And so just having those kinds of experiences of being supported, of being cared for. And and I think also once I started to learn the practice and I really began to get a sense of this flow of of all that flows into me from my ancestors, my spiritual ancestors, my blood ancestors, my land ancestors, like this practice of touching the earth that Thich Nhat Hanh or Tai, as his students call him, shared with us of, of bowing, prostrating, and really knowing that we are a continuation of all these different lives that came before us. That gave me a real sense of faith, of trust, of like there is something that is this heritage, this, this stream, and it is really something that, like I'm not alone with whatever is arising I'm not alone. And so I think many different things were showing themselves in my life, in the life of our community, that were really trustworthy.
0: Yeah, I love that. And I think that you already kind of began to answer the next thing that was coming into my mind as you were speaking, which is that it feels like there are these two different kinds of don't know or these two different kinds of uncertainty, maybe these different feeling tones associated with it. You have some people or some moments in life, one way or the other, where somebody's don't know has a lot of anxiety attached to it. Oh my God, I don't know. You know, that that is one kind of feeling tone. And then there's the feeling tone associated with, whether you wanna call it don't know mind or opening up to possibility or whatever it might be. They're both not knowing. One of them doesn't have a better knowledge state than the other, but the tone associated with them is so different. And I have to imagine that you probably still have some moments in your life, even after a very long time of practice, where that first kind of don't know starts to creep into the system and maybe override momentarily the second kind of don't know, which you've really practiced with. And I'm just wondering, for starters, what do you think about that? But maybe more specifically, what do you do when you start to feel that first kind of anxious, not-knowing creep in to return to your connection to the other kind of not-knowing?
2: Well, I, I definitely agree with you that those two states have really different flavors. And, you know, what was so profound about this choice to leave the monastery was it was the first time in my life I was making a decision that wasn't supported by people around me. Mm. I was lucky in my life to be very supported. Yeah. <laughs> and even then, even then, even when I left the monastery, there was so much love and so much trust from all the years of living together that people didn't judge me or, you know, they wished me well. Even, it was just sadness. They really wished me to stay. Mm. But, but I, hadn't, I hadn't really had that experience before of, of disappointing people mm. and making a choice that, that many of the people I respected and looked up to didn't think was maybe the best choice for me. So that coupled with not knowing anything about what would come next... <laughs> You know, the manager in me was like, "Wait a minute! <laughs> you have everything you need <laughs> in this life as a nun." And I always thought I would be a nun for my whole life. I could really see how my whole life would would unroll, you know, unfold within within this community in a beautiful way because I had a very beautiful fifteen years. Mm-hmm. But it was also really clear that I, that had to shift. That I had to, ex- you know, explore at least give a chance. You know. So I left while I was still in robes sort of as a as a time to explore did I really want to disrobe or would I come back so everything in me was like wait a minute like these are the people I love this is all of my identity everything that I know and now you you want to take us into the <laughs> the void of nothingness <laughs> where where you don't have an identity, you don't have a place to live, you don't have a job, you don't have friends, you don't have money, you don't have food, you know? And so, so that caused a lot of anxiety, mm. you know? And I was luckily, I, I had the very good fortune to be able to sit these long retreats at IMS, the three-month retreats, just in silence. And it really was an experience of these two kinds of don't know <laughs> coming very close mm. together. And, and this was what was so beautiful that I share in the book from visiting with Joseph Goldstein as one of my interview teachers, because he was like, you know, there's this incredible possibility in the uncertainty that isn't there when you have everything figured out. And that just gave me a different perspective because I was so used to my whole life knowing what I was going to do next. You know, I was a good planner. I was good at following through, you know, and I had, you know, good structures around me. It was like, yeah, you do this, and then you do this, and then you do this. So I was always used to knowing and and doing that, you know. And here I was, like, for the first time, I don't know. I don't know anything about what might come about. And then this opportunity to see that as a great thing, as something that, that could really be very fertile. And so, so what I found in these long silent retreats was I learned to become more comfortable with the not knowing.
3: Mm.
2: It wasn't that I knew at the end of the. I never found out the answer in these long retreats. I I always secretly hoped, can I just resolve this question? But that never happened. All that happened was that I became more at ease with not knowing.
1: Mm -hmm. Just so people know. IMS stands for Insight Meditation Society, as you well know. That's a wonderful center in uh, Massachusetts. I'm very touched by this. And I'm, I was very touched by this phrase in your book, trusting the unknown, which seems very relevant to the great distinction that Forrest Rose just a little bit ago. And it's interesting they use the word trust for the unknown. And you related that back to Faith or conviction. So a person might say, well, tolerate the unknown or get organized around the unknown or adapt to the unknown, but you're really talking about trusting it per se. And I wonder if you could say more what you mean by that. I mean, the unknown is, in effect, it's the future because the present is known, at least as it is. I think of the phrase, the future is the undiscovered country." The whole notion of impermanence, you know, that the present is this razor thin slice of the moment, current moment. Mm. And yet in the present, in which there's no future or past, the causes of the past are contained that are then making the next moment of the future, you know, continuously. And so here we are in this, as we get closer and closer to the front edge of now, as we put it, there really is clearly a sense of everything passing away rapidly and radically, which can be really alarming simultaneously, there's this ongoing arising of the next new thing. And there's some way in which you're talking about trusting the endless arisings, I guess, or just feeling some kind of confidence in all that.
2: You know, one of the ways I, I could talk about it is in Buddhist psychology, this framing of the mind being separated into the the daily thinking mind, mind consciousness, and then the store consciousness, which is way more vast, way more capable, but isn't so known, right? We have all these different seeds of of our previous experiences, memories, ancestral knowings, all of these things are sort of down there, if you will, in quotes, (laughs) under the soil is another kind of metaphor. All these seeds are down in the soil, and then whatever we water is what comes up into our mind consciousness. You know, this unknown is like store consciousness. It's this part of ourself that isn't out in the open, and yet it very much informs what happens on the stage of our mind. And when we trust our store consciousness, you know, we are working with it. We are able to benefit from it. So, like, you know, when you have a really great idea, you didn't make that happen, right? You don't exactly know where it comes from, how it came about, yeah. but it, it was growing down there in your store consciousness as a seed. It was waiting for the right conditions and then poof, there it was, this really good idea or an insight into how to resolve something. So when those kinds of things happen, it's like you see the power of store consciousness, which isn't just our own individual store consciousness either, right? It's a collective store consciousness because each of our deeper level consciousnesses are connected to each other's. And so, so that's one way of thinking of this, how the unknown is this this place we can actually rest into that works much better than the way we usually try to make things happen or control or predict outcomes. Like if we can trust into that space that actually is holding all of us all the time, you know, um, we, we, we begin to put ourselves in, in alignment with it. (laughs) Mm. It's when we think we can control and shape and, which we can, we can have some influence, but we're much better at manifesting things when we are in working with that, that unknown. And part of that working with the unknown is to really acknowledge it and to trust it, mm. that it has, it has something we cannot of our own, our own will create or, or determine.
0: Part of what's coming up for me when I hear you speaking about this is something that a lot of people have talked about in different kinds of ways, whether it's sort of the Jungian notion of the collective unconscious or its various somatic terms for it. Because for me, it it feels like there's this difference that you're speaking to essentially between contraction and expansion. Mm -hmm. The sensory notion that I feel in my body when I'm in that, you know, anxiety, don't know mind space is one very much of contraction. It's the small self, it's the closed mind, it's however you want to think about it. And there's another one, which is much more expanded, that there's this feeling of kind of like relaxing out into. Mm
3: -hmm.
0: And that's just sort of what came up for me when I heard you talking about Mm -hmm. it and seemed to be very present in the way that you were speaking about it, that sense of sort of Obviously, it's not a physical act, but there is something about it that feels physicalized Mm -hmm. in terms of the relaxation out into Mm -hmm. that space of I don't know that's in front of us, maybe, or it can feel directionally like it's in front of us. What do you think about that in terms of the physical aspect of it?
2: I love that. My body was like "Mm," as soon as you said that.
0: Yeah,
3: yeah. It
2: it really resonated. One of the things I share about him in the book is. I I invite people to physically lean back Mm. to have this experience of basically letting go, because we tend to really lean in and try to, you know, tense up and face or figure out what's going to happen. But this sense of leaning back and just Mm. resting in what is, you know? So if we're encountering a time of confusion or uncertainty to actually rest back into that mm. versus this oh i got to figure it out you know and it can be so you know i mean our nervous systems are built on needing to know <laughs> right yeah. to feel safe yeah yeah it's really counter to kind of where we find our our sense of safety mm. i think it is really something we can train in our bodies this sense of like floating
3: Hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: where or hanging you know kind of hanging in space or in water like this sense of like we we just don't know and that doesn't mean that we're not being held at the same time
0: i really like that the idea of just because we don't know doesn't mean we aren't being held i think Mm -hmm. that's a really Mm
2: -hmm.
0: wonderful way to put it and Mm -hmm. it's just an incredibly quick note here I'm not an expert in somatic psychology at all as a disclaimer, but my partner, Elizabeth, is training to be a somatic psychologist. And they have a notion in somatic psychology of this idea of finding the back body, which is almost exactly what you were referring to, Mm. the kind of space in the spine, finding the back, Mm. and operating from that seated posture when you're interacting with a client because Mm. it can change sort of the ways in which the tone of the communication flows between the two people. And Mm. so that just, again popped up for me as you were speaking and felt very sympathetic with it.
2: Beautiful.
0: If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment. And it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice complement to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, The Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to The Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe. And the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing science-based, myth-busting podcast that's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OSO1 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off, oneskin.co, with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. If you're comfortable with it, Kyra Jewel, I would love to make a little topic transition here, which is into something that we've wrestled with pretty frequently on the podcast, and it's a central theme of your book. The uncertain times that we find ourselves in right now, both as individuals and as a collective group of people, are really challenging for many, many different people. And part of what we've described in this conversation so far is this feeling of openness, You know, openness, relaxation, acceptance, the undiscovered country, choose your analogy. But a lot of the things that are going on right now don't necessarily have that sensation of openness associated with them for many people. They're real, real struggles, real challenges, COVID, climate change, racial injustice, economic inequality, in addition to so many other issues. And For a lot of people, I think that they really struggle right now to hold the truth of that suffering, the truth of that discomfort, without becoming overwhelmed by it, even if they themselves, their small life is going kind of okay right now, even if they're buffered by privilege or have not experienced these hardships directly. And I was wondering what sort of supports you as somebody who is so engaged in this work with both holding the truth of that suffering out in the world and those real challenges and not becoming overwhelmed by it or suffuse with it in that way.
2: For me, this has a lot to do with joy and connecting with what we love. So um, this quote of Howard Berman's, don't look for what the world needs, but find what makes you come alive because what the world needs are people that have come alive. Mm. This is a very beloved uh, Black theologian, activist. I just watched a really beautiful documentary on him, by the way. It's free on YouTube called Backs Against the Wall. He basically was one of the key people who brought nonviolence to the civil rights movement. Mm. And he was someone who wasn't really on the front lines, but was kind of the, the spiritual contemplative that was teaching a lot of people that were on the front line. Anyway, this sense of when when we really touch into what makes us alive, we have a lot to offer. We really need to take interest in what's what's around us. You know, like if we can care for the places, the people, the beings. You know, whether they're animal, plant, people, beings in our environment that's how we contribute to the larger situation. We can really get bogged down if we think we have to solve problems everywhere in the world. I mean, we are interconnected. And yet, if we take in all the things that are happening around the world, which there's so much tragedy, right? We will quickly feel helpless and overwhelmed. But we are not helpless when it comes to the people and the situation's, in our environments. And, and even in the world at large, we're not helpless. I mean, organizations that I'm a part of, like Avaz or other groups that, that have a global impact, those signatures matter, those donations matter. So even from our little part of the world, participating, speaking up in things that are happening in other parts of the world can give us a sense of, of meaning, of, of empowerment. But really, I think the key is to find something that matters to us and to, to really get involved in what we care about, whether it's our grandchildren or mm. the elderly people we volunteer with at a senior home or the homeless or rescuing animals. There isn't a, a blueprint for how to be engaged. Each of us has to find what is meaningful for us that fulfills us because if, if we find things that fulfill us, we'll keep going. Mm. The spirit we bring to the work or the activism or the engagement, that's what goes out into the world, mm. right? So, if we're bringing the spirit of this isn't enough, you know, this won't make a difference or I'm too small. If we can tap into the joy, to the sense of purpose and meaning in how we're engaging, it really can help to bring down that sense of helplessness or overwhelm. So, Angelus Arian, a wonderful teacher and storyteller, anthropologist, she would say, action is what really helps us take care of our anxiety, you know? So, with, with our action in something that's meaningful to us, that anxiety about what's happening in the world really is dealt with
1: to almost underline for me at least several headlines um, takeaways big takeaways from talking here one is this notion that it is actually the trust in underlying positive forces whether it's in storehouse consciousness or our own narrowly defined human unconsciousness or in the web of life extending into our ancestors and in the whole natural world, it's the trust in all that which buoys us, all that gives us life that actually helps empower its flow through us. Mm. So it's the trust in it yeah. is an active agent. It's a catalyst of that. Yeah. Like, okay, good takeaway. Mm-hmm. And then another mm-hmm. one, especially for a guy like me, I think of the metaphor of you know, the river of life, right? And I do think a lot of people are just sort of swirling down the river you know, rudderless, motorless, confused, entertaining themselves or despairing, whatever they might be doing. But they haven't really turned on the engine and, you know, in some sense, Mm. taken responsibility Mm. for directing their own craft. So I'm definitely a motorboat kind of Mm. guy to Mm. a fault on the one hand. On the other hand, as that guy, wow, I was just knocked out. When you talked about that feeling with that metaphor of being in water, being mm. in the pool. I grew up a lot in swimming mm. pools in Southern California, so I can relate to it. Being in the pool and to realize you are being held up in ways, all kinds of unknown mm. and unseen ways. And to have trust in that and, and an embodied sense, like Forrest was describing, of what it's like to, to be in that. Yeah. So really, really beautiful. Mm. I just want to underline mm. that. and then third headline, as we talk about how to deal with the world in which, as Forrest put it in in the notes we had to prepare here, a lot of people, me included, have really quite comfortable lives while also feeling a lot of discomfort at the suffering of others. And how do we manage that? And you really underlined the whole notion of joy, finding what gives you joy, finding what brings you alive, quoting Howard Thurman and that actually helps you deal with all of this like that's counterintuitive okay so now i want to use that as a bit of a segue into the internal psychological practice of equanimity and certainly joy interestingly can be a factor of equanimity a sense of eudaimonic well-being a sense of purposefulness that you're doing what you can you know that definitely can be a factor of equanimity but i wonder if you could go further and talk about equanimity, and including as a notion in Buddhist psychology. To quote Howard Thurman, back to you, I, I think he had the phrase, looking out at the world with quiet eyes. Mm. You know, the world can be noisy and busy, but we can look at it with quiet eyes. Yeah. So I wondered, with all that big warm-up, you could talk <laughs> about how people might cultivate greater equanimity inside.
2: Sure. Let me just, before I say Something about that, I want to just, what you were saying, Rick, inspired me. Part of this trust, when you were speaking, it clicked inside that what allows this sense of trust, this sense of being held, is also seeing everything in our lives as sacred. All of life is sacred. Everything that is operating, it is really precious, and so Yeah, when we rest back into something, it is part of that something is our shared connection with all that is. And and knowing that, that just like we are a precious being, every other thing is precious. Every other being, every other. So that just kind of came as you were talking, this sense of touching the sacred. It's been in our human consciousness for millennia and in our indigenous cultures but but our modern society has has gotten disconnected from that.
1: So you're walking down a busy city street.
2: Mm.
1: Cars, pollution, sidewalks, mm-hmm. asphalt,
3: mm-hmm.
1: all the rest of it, huge carbon mm-hmm. generating situation. Yeah. How do you find the sacred in that?
2: Yeah. All that scene that you described is animated by by people. Right. And people each being is sacred. And so something that I practice sometimes, whether I'm driving, you know, I might just see a car or some vehicle and just wish wish them to be safe getting to where they're going. Or if I'm walking down the street and I see people, I'm in touch with my wish for them to, to be well, to be safe, to get what they need to get done or get the support that they need that day. Or if I'm on the subway, on a train or, or bus, and I'm looking at the people, sometimes I remember, you know, to really look at them and and practice seeing their humanity and caring about them. So that's one way I practice that in the midst of an urban situation. So you mentioned when when we're comfortable and and when we find it difficult to see those others that are suffering. And that's one situation of practicing equanimity. And another situation is also when we are suffering, and how do we practice to hold that with balance? For my life, when I have been in times of suffering and couldn't change that situation, it really helped to rest in the acceptance of it as it was. So being with a a beloved family member who. Well, I was about to lead a retreat and had to help a family member who needed to be in the hospital. So, helping them get to the hospital in the midst of a flu that I was starting to get. So, I'm like overnight in an emergency room waiting for this family member to be admitted, and I'm feverish and coughing and having chills and a headache. And two days later, I'm supposed to lead a retreat by myself. (laughs) And I'm like, oh boy. And what really helped in that moment was just realizing all I can do is be right here with what is happening. And uh, worrying about how I'm going to get that retreat done is not going to help, but I can be here. I can be compassionate towards my physical suffering. I can be in touch with my worry for this loved person who has to be in the hospital and not make that worse. But basically not resisting what was happening was what I found really helpful in a very difficult time to to not add to the suffering that was already there. You know, then I found, I went and I taught that retreat. I got better and pretty soon, you know, I could be fully there with everyone. and It was a good retreat. and, And my family member ended up you know staying in the hospital for a while and then coming out and being okay so life makes its way and it's and there is suffering along the way but you can make it much easier versus harder by how you deal with the suffering mm. and so that's that's in that kind of situation and then you know when it comes to other people's suffering or just in general if the situation is such that we can't change it then working with it to do our best within that constraining circumstance, to be our best, to support others to be their best, and then to also let go, to not be attached to how things will be, should be. But I, I really want to emphasize that equanimity isn't passivity. It's not indifference. It's not oh well, throwing up your hands. You know, it's it's. Someone asked me on a teaching, what's the difference between giving up and surrender? (laughs) You know, because it's not giving up. It's not saying, oh, I can't do anything. It's not helplessness. But it is the sense of the peace in my own mind really contributes to the peace around me. Mm. So, if there's a very disrupted situation around me, equanimity allows me to have peace within that disrupted situation. So, I'm not adding to the disruption. With all of my inner turmoil. The situation is there, and I'm going to be as responsive as I can to reduce the suffering in me, around me. And equanimity is this place where I can center myself, where I can stay steady and see the situation clearly. You know, this quiet eyes of of Howard Thurman, the eyes through which you can see things as they are. If your eyes are very noisy, you don't see a lot of what's happening. And so equanimity is so crucial because it actually helps us perceive correctly. Mm. And then what we do in response is so much more relevant and, and appropriate. But we can't do that if our eyes are clouded by all of our agitation. So really equanimity is like, it's the opposite of giving up. It's really like, no, it's so important that we, we be able to be our best especially now, right? Because that will make all the difference actually is what's happening in our minds as mm-hmm. things get more and more out of control. Like the story of, of Thich Nhat Hanh that with all these people fleeing Vietnam in boats, overcrowded, not enough food, super high levels of fear and panic and stress. And, and he said, if just one person can stay calm in that boat, the whole boat has a chance to survive. Mm. And so equanimity is about that, is about how do we keep our own minds steady? Because a lot of people are depending on us, mm. actually.
1: Yeah, I'm really glad you've, you've emphasized this point, Cara Jewell, um, partly because a number of your examples are about things actually working out. You know, you did make it to that place of refuge back then when you were in India, yeah. and your your relative did turn out okay out of the hospital, it did turn out okay the teaching retreat. And there are a lot of times and situations, as you well know, where things don't work out, yeah. where there is no remedy for the injustice, yeah. where the loss is never repaired. Yeah. I mean, there there are many times where things don't work out, yeah. and it seemed a little bit for a while that you were talking about taking faith in the fact that eventually things will work out, even. At the global scale, in addition to whatever sense you might have of the underlying ground that holds us, you are also really emphasizing here toward the end, the internal psychological factors of equanimity, that inner quiet, that inner peace, that that stability, that calm, the not reacting to the reactions that are arising in the mind, you know, greed, hatred, anger, delusion, sorrow, heartache and so forth may arise in the mind but they do not invade us and remain as Forrest quotes the Buddha actually in saying <laughs> right uh, there's an inner shock absorber we don't react to those reactions mm-hmm. we're not yet perfectly yeah. awakened reactions still arise inside us understandably but we don't react to them they don't mm-hmm. pierce us to the core of mm-hmm. our being anyway I'm just really glad that you've emphasized these 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 aspects
2: yeah thank you for for that beautiful. Framing also of like shocks happen, but we don't have to react to them inside of us that's really beautiful yeah and and you know just to, to your point too of like the examples of, that I gave that really did work out, and how often that isn't the case, that is also a, a time where equanimity is so powerful because you know there is this acknowledgement that life is made of losses and gains of times of well-being and times of ill-being. And that's part of the wisdom of equanimity is just that longer view of seeing our ancestors have gone through pandemics before. You know, maybe yeah. maybe they haven't faced <coughs> <laughs> human made mass extinction, but <laughs> you know, there's there's something in our very being that also we can rely on that has that has a great resilience. Mm. And that this is part of part of being alive is dealing with all of these things and and that, you know, also our our each of our contributions can be to create societies of greater justice, of greater truth where certain kinds of suffering don't have to be a fact of life.
0: One of the things that can be A struggle sometimes when it comes to understanding an idea, particularly a very nuanced, big idea like equanimity, is the language itself. And one of the translations that I like of the original word that we turned into equanimity in English is this idea of, I believe it's like as seeing from a high place or seeing the full picture, Mm -hmm. which for me just grounds the, the notion, the word in a much more grokable fashion to steal one of my favorite words from Stranger in a Strange Land. It it just feels a little bit different than this kind of cool notion of equanimity that we sometimes develop inside of our culture. And so there are these kind of two aspects to it that I think you're speaking to. First is a a piece with arisings and passings. Things appear, things fall away. And in both conditions, whether things work out or they don't, however you want to think about it, we can have an equanimity directed toward them and the second aspect of it is that seeing clearly seeing what is true not having the delusions of the mind appear throughout that process and really being present with the truth of the suffering or the reality of what we're doing as a you know as a collective species whatever it might be and it's one thing to kind of engage in both of those practices comfort with the rising and passing comfort with the clear seeing when We're in maybe to return to what we were talking about at the very beginning, that kind of back body place, when we're on balance, when we're in our center, when we've got things comfortably going on around us. And it's quite another to do that when we're not, when we're in the kind of anxious don't know mind, maybe. And there's probably somebody who's listening right now, who's facing a challenging moment. They're going through a period of difficulty. They're facing losses in their life. They're overwhelmed, they're taken off of their feet, they're not in that centered place. And I'm wondering for you as just like such a deeply practiced person, what are some of the things that you do to kind of return to that bigger picture feeling when you get tossed off of your center or when things get challenging for you in your life?
2: Yeah. You know, one of the things is to remind myself that this is part of how it goes (laughs) you know that it's not (laughs) this is not something wrong Uh, you know that's part of not taking it personally because we always want to be like what did I do that made this Mm. happen why am I experiencing this I don't want this this shouldn't be happening some and for sure there are definitely there's great injustice and oppression and there are things that should not be happening for sure and having an awareness of this bigger picture view that you spoke to can really support us. This I write about in the book, when I looked at Derek Chauvin's mugshot, mm, you know, mm-hmm. I, I really I thought this is a really lost person. You know, in the other images we saw of him on the video, it was very easy to me to sort of categorize him as. Someone cruel, someone you know, ignorant, someone in power who was very cut off from their own humanity. But when I saw his mugshot, I saw a vulnerability that I hadn't seen in these other times, and I thought he really looks lost. And and it was an opening a door to just a meditation of like, how did he come to be the way he 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 mm-hmm. is? You know, he didn't create himself like that. Like he is a product of a whole society, just like each of us are a product of a whole society and the history of policing and white supremacy and the history of the whole United States. And so this one way of dealing, of of facing a really difficult situation of anxiety is to, to see if we can see other sides of how the situation has come to be. I mean, that's may- maybe a bit more of an advanced practice, <laughs> but I mean, it's one that you can build to, but maybe yeah. to ask someone right in a moment of anxiety to do that is a little, a little too much, but, but it, it is an important piece of, of seeing um, we, we are all interconnected. And so in a situation of injustice or oppression, violence we need to take good care of ourselves or, or anyone who's being harmed. And equanimity also means to see, at least eventually, how everyone in that situation, perpetrator, you know, is also some kind of victim. We are all c- created by the systems that, that surround us. It doesn't mean we don't have responsibility, but it, it means we can, we can hold those in our lives with greater compassion with which is really freeing it really frees us up from so much suffering when we can see how they came to be the way they are how the situation came to be the way it is it's part of why we really need to study and learn together and unlearn together how white supremacy works how you know capitalism racialized capitalism how all these structures function to create harm and very intentionally, and to, to see how we can extric- extricate ourselves and create new models that that really do care for for everyone. So that's a bigger bigger answer. And maybe uh, for someone who's sort of like first aid for <laughs> for anxiety <laughs> in terms of equanimity, would just would say really giving ourselves space to to feel what we're feeling. That that mm. it's not wrong mm. to feel anxiety. It's not you know, to this sense of really feeling it in the body. You spoke about your partner being a somatic psychologist. If it's anxiety, where do we feel it in our body? Can we bring a hand there to support? Can we expand the feeling in the body? Not something we would normally think to do. Who wants more of anxiety? But it's actually not creating more. It's allowing the anxiety to become more diffuse, by giving it more space. Mm-hmm. So this whole thing of leaning back and you know of the back body of is, is creating space is like this emotion now has more room, so it becomes more tolerable. Part of equanimity mm-hmm. is being able to be with what's difficult. We we really need to learn this in our in our lives, personally, collectively, to hold the tension, to hold the discomfort. And we really need to bring our bodies online to do that. So if we feel anxiety in the chest or shoulders or face or head, whatever, let it take up more parts of the body. You can bring the hands to help, you know, to to where you're feeling it and then put a hand on your belly or your your leg and, and feel the anxiety taking up more space than it was originally. And then that one place where it was isn't, so overburdened, overwhelmed by that emotion. So that's like a somatic equanimity practice.
1: I love that. That's really a good one. Thank you. Well, you know, in addition to clearly the wisdom in your words, there's such hard and practice transmission coming through them. Mm -hmm. And frankly, one of the things that I draw on when I'm troubled or anxious is the feeling of being with key people. Mm. And you're one of the people that I can touch on mm. the feeling of being with mm. as a refuge and as a mm. like a healing balm, um, a cloak mm. <laughs> of comfort
2: thank you.
1: when I'm troubled. So thank thank you. you very much. Thank you very, very much.
2: That's really kind. And thank you so much. And I'm so grateful for your endorsement of my book also. It's really nice to see it on the back cover every time.
3: <laughs>
2: Thank you.
0: Today, we had a wonderful time speaking with Kyra juul about how we can better deal with times of change, uncertainty, and difficulty. And I just want to start by saying that I really appreciated and enjoyed this conversation personally. I found it truly moving at times, and there was so much in it that I'm going to take into my personal life. We began by talking about trusting the unknown and embracing moments where you truly don't know what's going to happen next. We explored a lot during this part of the conversation. Kyra Jewell talked about opening to the unknown. We talked about the physical sensation that you can find in the body, where you move from the closed, anxious kind of don't-know mind to a very open and spacious and expansive version of don't-know mind. Kyra Jewell mentioned the fertile ground of possibility that's inherent in times when we don't know what's going to happen next that maybe isn't as present when we have sort of a very closed, fixed perspective. We spent some time discussing that difference between closed don't know mind and open don't know mind. Uh, We used a number of different analogies and really got into kind of the somatics that underlie it. We then turned toward our second major topic, equanimity. And I began by asking Kyra Jewell what she does to hold both the reality of suffering out in the world and the reality of her own suffering alongside this feeling of spacious openness. Clear seeing married with a comfort, ultimately, with the arising and falling away of all things. One of the things that she emphasized a number of times is this kind of balance, a balance between truly taking action out in the world because action can bind anxiety. When we know that we're doing something to help alleviate pain and suffering, it can become a lot easier to hold the truth of that pain and suffering. She brought many different things together in her answer. First, she emphasized action. Action binds anxiety. When we take action out in the world, that's both useful psychologically, it helps us feel better about whatever it is that we're experiencing, and it's also useful practically. We're contributing in a positive way to a cause that we might care about. Then she talked for a while about practicing with our secondary reactions to things or the kind of psychological formations or constructs that can emerge around the pain that we do experience. We're all going to experience pain in this life, but we don't have to add pain to that pain. And that's often what happens when we react to the pain and get swept away by it in negative ways. And then third, she talked about what might be called a kind of ultimate peace, a comfort with the arising of things and the falling away of them. Sometimes things work out, sometimes they don't. And in both conditions, it's important to carry a kind of equanimity. She told a wonderful story taken from her teacher, Thich Nhat Hanh, where she talked about people in boats fleeing conflict in Vietnam. If even one person in the boat can stay calm, then the whole boat has a far greater chance of success. I then asked at the end what helps Kyra Jewel move into a greater stance of equanimity, that combination of both clear seeing and comfort with that arising and falling away when she herself goes through a time of difficulty or when she's taken off balance and off of her center. And she gave this really lovely practice as a kind of quick first aid intervention that i'm definitely going to be using in my own life she talked about tuning into the bodily sensations that can accompany anxiety and then maybe even expanding them which can sound a little strange if you've ever wrestled with anxiety before as i have why would i want more anxiety but the point isn't to increase the amount of anxiety you have The point is to give it somewhere to go, allow it to spread, allow it to open, allow it to soften. A lot of the time we have the experience of anxiety being held narrowly in a body part, or at least that's true for me. If I have anxiety in my chest, that can feel very constricted and constrained. What happens if I let the anxiety spread from my chest to my stomach, and then maybe to my legs, to my feet, to my hands, to my head? What I experience when I do that is that it feels like the total amount of anxiety goes down rather than going up because it's getting almost thinner across my body, and then I can sort of just release it and let it go somewhere else. It was a really profound practice for me in the moment when I started doing it, so I really appreciate that you shared that. Again, as a reminder, Kyra Jewell's wonderful book is We Were Made for These Times, and if you're interested in reading it, I've included a link to it in the description of today's podcast. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. Also, if you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return. Until next time, thanks for listening.